And now for the first lesson from Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 14, and then we skip to verses 19 through 25. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since then, he has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen.
That was lovely. Thank you. Don't, don't allow the congregation silence to think that you lulled them to sleep. They're just appreciative. That was beautiful. Um, Mark is our gospel lesson today, the 13th chapter, the first eight verses. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on top of another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Open our ears. Unstop them. Uh, not because they're closed, but because there's so much other noise that attacks our heads and tries to get to our hearts. Clear that extra sound from our hearts and from our minds and from our ears so that your word can grab our hearts, the word of eternal life, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, one more story from Scripture this morning. Uh, we've not been reading all three of the lectionary passages, uh, but I want to share with you just the passage from uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel, and uh, the text went through the first and a portion of the second chapter. So I'm just going to briefly tell you this story. There is a man named Elkanah, and he's a good man, and annually went to Shiloh in order to sacrifice and show his love for God. He went to Shiloh because the temple in Jerusalem was not yet built, and that is where the high priest dwelt, was in Shiloh. He had two wives, Penina and Hannah. Penina had many children, and Elkanah would always offer some of the meat from the sacrifices to his wife Penina and to her children. And there was a second wife, her name was Hannah. Penina would often gloat over Hannah because Hannah had no children, and Penina had lots of kids. But Hannah was barren, and so she was very sad, except Elkna loved her very much, so he would always give her a double portion of prime rib so that she would know how much he loved her. Okay, let's wait a minute. Let's, let's, just, let's, just, let's just stop right there. Let, two wives, really? Loved one more than the other? What is this, a Netflix series about fundamentalist Mormons? What's more, there's absolutely no commentary in the text that condemns or disowns Elkanah for having two wives. In fact, it says he's a very good man who served God. And the fact that he loved one wife more than he loved the other also isn't condemned. It just sets the stage for an entirely different story about Hannah, who eventually gives birth to baby Samuel. Now, I was a family counselor for many years at the Karen Counseling Center, but i got to tell you, I have no experience 
counseling polygamists and competing wives. I don't even know where to start here. Last week, we lingered over the story of Naomi and Ruth. Naomi tells her daughter-in-law, Ruth, that during the harvest festival to approach Boaz. And this was a passage that was read last week. And at the end of the banquet, when Boaz is completely full of food and drink, she is supposed to nuzzle up to Boaz and see what happens. It worked. Boaz marries Ruth. But there is no commentary about Ruth's moment of weird seduction with the old guy. It serves only as a backdrop for the account of how a foreigner ends up being in the bloodline a few generations later of King David. So here it is in the text. There's no explanation. Without apology, there are these accounts throughout Holy Scripture which depict scenes which by today's standards would be considered disgusting, maybe even vile, certainly worthy of shame and condemnation. At the very best, they should be exploited by tabloids. Scooting forward in the Hannah story, Benita picks on Hannah for having no children, and she does it so unmercifully that Hannah finally excuses herself from the banquet table and goes out into the hallway, drops to her knees, and begins to sob. She prays to God that she can get pregnant so that she could receive honor. What? Anyway, uh, the love of her husband isn't enough. She wants a baby. Which, by the way, just as a quick aside, husbands, you can't fix everything. Double prime rib does not remove the pains of your partner's heart. But that's just an aside. Her sobs and her quiet praying is is so intense that the high priest, Eli, comes down the hall and accuses her of being drunk. She responds that she's not drunk. She just really wants a baby. Eli apologizes and tells Hannah her prayer will be answered before the next year's festival. And she does have a son. She names him Samuel. And going forward, the story becomes much more comfortable. And then we can start telling the rest of it to the kids about little Samuel in the temple with Eli. But for this morning, I want us to linger for just a few moments over these awkward texts and how awkward they are. I could provide for you dozens of examples throughout history throughout scripture we just gave kids bibles that contained these stories but for this morning just take a look at these few examples now some just draw a line between the old testament and the new testament those were old testament so it's okay in the old testament for polygamy and violent warfare and genocide these are all old testament problems but jesus came and made it all better and so we just set aside the awkwardness of those hebrew scripture texts but it isn't suddenly all better in first timothy chapter 3 verse 2 Uh, when Timothy is outlining the characteristics of a a good elder, or Paul is to Timothy, uh, it says there's a denunciation of polygamy. Except that's not what it says. It just says that if you want to be an elder, elders should be a husband of one wife. Which means there's polygamists in the community, but if you want to promote an elder, promote those who only have one wife. But no condemnation against those who have multiple wives. The New Testament, in fact, does not condemn things that we find repugnant, things like, I don't know, slavery. The whole book of Philemon is the Apostle Paul writing and pleading with Philemon 
to take back his runaway slave, Onesimus, and don't kill him for desertion, as was his right. A passage that was often preached in the antebellum South. As it is often pointed out, too, that uh, Jesus may or may not have been too keen on divorce, but it turns out he had absolutely nothing to say about homosexuality. It's hard for some of us to remember the controversies, for instance, guarding women's ordination. The Apostle Paul clearly in multiple epistles said women should keep silent in church and go home and ask their husband their questions if they have any. But one of the remarkable stories of our own congregation is how our own Esther Grether became the second woman ordained by the Presbytery of Chicago. And uh, that was in 1960. Our library is named for her. We don't remember the great controversy as to whether or not women should be allowed to stand in the pulpit. We don't have that really problem anymore. We would say back in the days, elders maybe, but definitely not pastors. What is the world coming to? Next thing you know, women will preach. When I was ordained some 30 years ago, there were many denominations that would not have allowed me to keep my ordination when I divorced. And even more denominations that certainly would not have allowed me to stand in the pulpit when I remarried. Absolutely not. Currently, the Reformed Church in America is undergoing great strife over the recognition of gay marriage and permission for LGBTQ plus community to pursue ordained ministry. Dozens upon dozens of congregations are now leaving the oldest denomination in the United States because they refuse to compromise with other congregations in their own ranks. And let's admit, the dust hasn't completely settled on our own denomination regarding same-sex issues. So, today, we're more enlightened. We honor same-sex marriage. But, yeah, transgendered pastors? Whew, I'm not so sure. It makes me uncomfortable. There's got to be a, a verse in the Bible that will help me explain my discomfort and be able to anchor it in something scriptural that will affirm my anxieties. But you know what? That's not what the Bible is for. There's this problem. The story of Scripture is not about my anxieties. Besides, before I think about condemning the behavior of another, never mind divorce and remarriage or arrogance, for that matter, simple glance in the mirror reminds me that I struggle with gluttony. At the same time, we've got these texts. We've got Ruth, a homeless refugee, a foreigner, a widow. We have Hannah, barren second wife. And without social commentary, God grants the desires of their hearts. In our gospel reading, the disciples are gobsmacked tourists gawking at the magnificent architecture of Herod's temple. Look at the size of this building, they're saying. Wow, look at the size of the stones that they used to build this building. Isn't it magnificent? Jesus says, not so fast. Not so fast. These stones at one point, all stacked on top of each other, not a one of them will be assembled. Our mission and outreach committee for the last three weeks has been meeting for a study of how indigenous people in this land were treated by men 
who claimed a Christianly right to dispossess the land and engaged in work which by modern standards would most likely be tried at the Hague for genocide. We are living in a difficult time. We are living in what the news media likes to call culture wars. There's an oxymoron for you, right? Culture wars. But like it or not, it is the history of human interaction. The massive structures of what we think is eternal eventually crumbles and falls. Why? Because social structures like physical buildings change over time. It is the abolitionist hymn, Once to Every Man and Nation, that contains the curious phrase, time makes ancient good uncouth. Time makes what we once thought was good to suddenly embarrass us. Now we're comfortable because that hymn was about slavery, but each of us struggle with a certain embarrassment over what we used to believe was permanent truth. In the swirl of change, even the jokes we used to tell now suddenly echo back to us and shame our hearts. Where can the unity of the church converge with our desire for the purity of the church? Where is it that we can grab onto something that is physically and socially certain and not constructed and capable of deterioration, disagreement, and decay? Let me tell you, if it is fashioned by human imagination, it's not going to last. If you want an example of how times have changed, consider an impoverished refugee widow who has to seduce a rich guy in order to have a home. And in that story, the rich guy is told, called good. Or a childless second wife who prays for a child and that prayer is answered. She's not granted the dignity of barrenness. She is granted the desire of her heart. The center is never where we have created it to be. What binds us, what holds us, what is immutable and unchanging is the gracious love of God. No matter what culture, no matter what condition, no matter what our heads or our guts like or dislike, what binds us is the unchanging love of God. The author of the lecture to the Hebrews, which Dan read to us, recognized this changing concern. He had witnessed Christianity take hold in the ancient world and then suddenly be a detested religion where Christians were persecuted and now a new emperor was on the throne and it was a beloved religion. What was he to say about their being in and out, detested or loved? 
The author remarks how throughout history, cultures have had earthly priests. And earthly priests go into their temple and offer sacrifice for the sins that were committed as they understand them to be. And they have to return again and again and again to sacrifice for the sins because the sins don't disappear. (laughs) The sin just mutates. And so the priest has to go back each festival to offer a sacrifice. But there is a means, the author says, to an anchoring grace. An anchoring grace. And so he writes this, or she writes this, we don't know. Every priest stands day after day in service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since then he has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies. The text continues. This is the covenant I will make with him for on those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There's a center. There is where purity and unity converge. It doesn't matter how we define sin or how we paint who is inside or outside or righteous or unrighteous. All that matters is the single sacrifice. And God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now we may look at something and it make us feel self-righteously uncomfortable But the next time that we think that we should judge and denounce the sins of others or the sins of our ancestors or the sins of those who we just think are detestable, we need to remember the only thing that God forgets is sin. May we have the same grace. Amen. Amen. Please stand and join with me in articulating our confession of faith through the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died.